listening to Closer Look. I'm Billy Branham. For a closer look at domestic violence, I talked with founder of The Men Project, Annette Oltmans. She's a survivor and a Christian. She knows firsthand what it's like to live it. Let's start with Pastor Paul Cole, president of the Christian Men's Network. Now, he's troubled by the nationwide spike in abuse brought on by the order to shelter in place. Pastor Paul, welcome. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Billy. We've heard that abuse is on the rise since COVID-19. Have you been seeing that? Yeah, it's uh, where I live in the Fort Worth area. The For the first time in 40 years, the local uh, help center, you know, that would uh, help moms and, and people at risk, you know, where they can stay overnight was full, absolutely packed. And so we see that across the country, you know, anywhere from a 20% rise and up in terms of domestic violence. And so, you know, pressure magnifies, Billy. So these things, this pressure of being locked in you, if you will, with COVID, and then all the other issues that are going on has created some untenable situations in uh, domestic violence. And what about you, Annette? Have you also seen a rise in cases of wives or husbands suffering abuse at home? Oh, certainly we have. In fact, when victims are and children are trapped at home with their abuser, maybe the abuser is work at home order, they don't have the ability to interact with their normal support networks or go to church or go to their own work environment. Abusers thrive on power and control. So they're now in this situation where they can control even more and power over every micro detail of what's going on in life. So other than just being locked in, what was causing all this? You know, uh, what happens is, let's say you're locked in with a couple other people. Well, pressure magnifies and all of a sudden you realize there's, you're not communicating. Things aren't going right. Uh, Your rhythm is off and you react and you react on the basis of what's in your heart. And so we have people whose hearts have not been aligned with righteousness. Let's just cut it right down to the core. And that is, you know, men who don't have their heart right with God will react out of a a moral compass that isn't aligned properly. And a lot of times we as men, we act out of anger, rage, you know, disappointment, and we lash out at people. And so for a man to change, you know, he's got to grab a hold of his heart and his spirit and say, you know what, that person is not the problem. It starts with me. Abusers have a hard time managing their emotions. So often people will say that women are over emotional when in fact in our culture, we generally raise girls to be more sensitive and empathetic. So they actually grow up being more in touch with subtle emotions where when we pre-program boys to not be sensitive or you know, boys shouldn't cry and things of that nature. You need to be a protector and you need to be strong. There are good aspects to that. But if you refuse to allow a boy to experience other emotions besides anger, you know, anger seems to be the one emotion that that some parents will support. It really diminishes the male from being able to develop a wide variety of emotions. So when a woman then expresses emotions, it it floods them. They don't have ability to cope with that. And so it's really an inability to manage or to process emotions on the male side. And so what we see in COVID is that so often you have a dominating person who doesn't have 
the ability to process his own stress and he over emotes onto the family rather than to allow everybody to experience their own stresses in this COVID situation and all process it together in a healthy way. The secondary part that happens in COVID is that people often don't recognize emotional abuse to be domestic violence, so they minimize it. And the victims have even lesser opportunities to seek help. What approach has been most successful in cases like this? The most successful approach to helping domestic violence is actually helping men understand and realize that they have a future, a vision for their future, and then also giving them tools to help them with their anger. Part of that, frankly, Billy, is to have a vision for your future. What does it look like? Where will I be? What's my freedom of being able to go after it? The, a lot of the desperation we have right now in the hearts of men is because of disappointment, because it didn't work out, or I don't feel like I can make it. And those are lies. And so uh, to that man right now, let's, let's help that man grab a vision, because that vision then gives him a purpose, and that purpose gives you a pattern of your life. And out of that pattern, you act. When you're out talking to men about abuse, what has been your experience with that? I've worked with men in prisons. I've worked with men in uh, every place from Zambia to Indonesia to Phoenix. And every single man is the same. He wants to know, why am I here on the earth? What's my purpose? Is this just a random thing? And the result of helping a man find his identity in Christ has been that he begins to act out in a righteous manner towards those that are around him and in his own life with other people. What would you say to a man who is abusing someone right now? What I would say to a man right now who is abusing someone is, is number one, you need help. And number two, to the person who's being abused, you need help. Call someone. Get a hold of someone. There are hotlines. There are people who want to help. There are trained people who want to help. And then the third thing is, if you're watching somebody being abused, help them in some manner. It's not always physically. If you study it out, uh, it means you call somebody who is a professional, who knows what they're doing. But don't just let it happen. So to that man who is an abuser right now, get help. You're wrong. And you know you're wrong in the deepest part of your heart. So get help. If you don't know where to turn, find Pastor Paul at christianmensnetwork.com or you can call here. One of our Closer Look pastors can help. Call 844-364-4673. That's 844-364-HOPE. I'm Billy Branham, taking a closer look at what can happen to families stuck in that pressure cooker of quarantine. I mean, tempers can flare, fists might even fly. Things can go from bad to worse in a hurry. And Annette, physical violence, it leaves a mark so it's easier to define. But what about mental abuse or emotional abuse? In my personal experience with domestic violence in the form of what I call covert emotional abuse, and then the double abuse that I experienced when I reached out for help, it compelled me to form the MEN Project and to conduct my own qualitative research by interviewing hundreds of victims, hundreds of therapists, and hundreds of pastors. One of the things that I discovered that was so profound to me was that most victims, therapists, and pastors, as well as the general public, have a hard time understanding what domestic violence is. Some believe it's solely physical violence. When the Center for Disease Control defines 
psychological aggression as the main component that defines abuse. If we break that down, psychological aggression falls into two main categories, basically. We have what I like to refer to as overt emotional abuse, which are things like name-calling, yelling, loud put-downs, and so forth, which victims are then more easily able to see that something is not right with their partner. They don't necessarily internalize it as something wrong with themselves. The same is true for physical assault. There's a bruise or a mark that shows the victim that abuse is what they are experiencing. But bruises and marks heal. Emotional abuse continues to affect victims' thoughts for extended periods of time. So there's also covert emotional abuse, which is totally different. These are the hidden manipulative tactics that are hard to identify, hard to describe, and therefore it makes it nearly impossible to confront them. Covert emotional abusive behaviors are things like, you know, none of us want to be lied to or reverse blaming. So when the victim raises a complaint or concerns regarding the abuser's behavior, the focus of the problem gets reversed onto the victim. Gaslighting, where the abuser will simply rewrite history and it toys with the victim's thoughts. They start to doubt their own memory and they doubt their own perspectives, their ability to discern clearly what's actually happening. And joking, like we all enjoy laughter and laughter is wonderfully healthy. However, for an abuser, jokes are not for everyone to enjoy. They're usually at someone's expense and it's usually the victim in his or her life that is the brunt of the joke. Like, oh, you don't want to eat my wife's cooking, you know, things of that nature. And then there's behavior false accusations. I mean, we all know if we've been falsely accused of something, how much anxiety and distress it causes. So the victim is accused of things they did not do in order to undermine the victim and forcing them to explain themselves in defense. So it derails the conversation. Another thing abusers do is they deflect. So the abuser refuses to discuss a problem in a healthy way that moves to a solution. They change the topic or they switch it around on the victim so there's no solution. They stonewall. Also, abusers avoid responsibility for wrongdoing. They won't be held accountable. They break promises. They minimize the victim's perspective so that whatever the victim values or holds dear is considered less than or even the victim's feelings. Well, oh, you're too sensitive things of that nature. Abusers will withhold affection or they'll control when affection can actually take place or they'll withhold conversation altogether, sometimes for weeks at a time. And a plethora of other covert behaviors that you can find very well laid out in our glossary of terms on our website. And if you think these behaviors are confusing as I described them, you can imagine how stressful and confusing it would be for your most intimate relationship to be immersed in it. Or you might even think, why would anyone put up with that? But usually it begins slowly and increases over time, wearing down the victim and grooming them to feel insecure and to doubt their own perspective. Any one of these behaviors repeated in a pattern is enough to be destructive to a relationship. So I mentioned lying. If you consider repeated lying in a relationship, you can imagine how destructive that would be. 
But when one behavior is playing out, the victim has a much better chance of being able to pinpoint the problem and feeling capable to confront it and understanding that it's not the victim's fault, it's the abuser's problem. But when multiple behaviors are taking place, the victim becomes confused, highly stressed, and beaten down. Multiple behaviors make it more difficult to discern the patterns that are playing out. Covert emotional abuse is a combination of difficult to detect, secretive, hard to name, disguised tactics used by the abuser to control the victim while making sure to confound them at the same time. And it works. Each of these tactics has basically one goal, and that's to throw the victim off balance and thereby strip them of their personal identity, their their self-confidence, and their individual power. So victims begin questioning reality and their own sanity. And with repeated covert emotional abuse, victims are held in what I like to call prolonged states of stressful confusion, resulting in anxiety and depression, and then even worse, post-traumatic stress disorder. When you combine all these um, symptoms, they all lead to immune system collapse and physiological illnesses taking hold. And the more prolonged the relationship and the more symptoms, the more difficult it becomes for a victim to unravel what's wrong. I really like the analogy God gave it to me in a dream of a maze. And if you consider the image of a maze, I like to relate that to a conversation. There's an entrance point in the maze and there's an exit point in the maze. And then there's, you know, many dead ends along the way. When you're dealing with a covert abusive personality, you're dealing oftentimes there are narcissistic personality disorder individuals that employ these tactics. But when you're dealing with someone, you try to have a conversation, a healthy conversation, for example, would be something like mutually respect each other. You take turns listening. You try to validate each other's feelings and You may not always agree, but you respectfully come to a conclusion that where both parties have a heart to want to resolve what their differences are. But when you're dealing with somebody who's employing these covert tactics, every dead end represents behavior, a stonewalling, a deflection, a reverse blame, a lie, gaslighting, minimization, and so forth. So the victim just becomes stuck in this maze of dead ends and doesn't realize that what they're really dealing with is domestic violence. And the best way that I can describe what it's like for a victim who's trapped in this, it's not that victims are weak in character, it's that they become weakened in spirit and they become overcome with profound self-doubt. If you're living this kind of relationship, reach out for help. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 800-799-7233, or go to thehotline.org. You can also reach out to us. Call the Closer Look Pastors at 844-364-4673. That's 844-364-HOPE. I'm Billy Branham. This is Closer Look. Pastor Paul, do you think that the church has a responsibility to intervene when there's domestic violence? When we see abuse as a church leader, it is our responsibility legally to report it if it's physical abuse. There's no way around that. And we're seeing that more and more where people have tried to 
you know, just, Hey, we're going to help you out. We're going to do, no, no, no. We've got to step in and stop it. No child deserves that. No woman deserves that. Nobody's done anything that would say, okay, it's okay to abuse. No, it's wrong. So we step in number one, that way. Number two, we step in by helping the abuser discover who they are and the value of other people. And outside of a heart change, outside of Jesus Christ, it's very difficult to do that. And in fact, that's why I always introduce people to Christ because that's the center point of who I am as a person. Pastors play a significant role. If you consider that domestic violence affects one in three women and one in four men, you can see that it's an epidemic in our society. And children who grow up in abusive situations are six times more likely to commit suicide, 50% more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, and 74% more likely to commit a violent crime. According to a 2017 LifeWay Research survey, which is a Christian organization, 87% of pastors agreed that spiritual institutions should be a safe place for those enduring abuse. This research also shows that pastors and spiritual advisors are being perceived as trustworthy and safe sources and that they can play a pivotal role in abuse victims. The study also showed was that pastors who speak out about domestic violence or sexual assault from the pulpit, 87% do so because they believe it's a problem in their community. But this is what's so profoundly impactful to me is that only 18% speak about it because they think it's a problem within their own congregation. So if we look at the numbers, one in three women and one in four men are experiencing domestic violence, but only 18% of pastors who speak about it believe that it exists in their congregation. How can they be a safe ear, a safe listening ear, and a person to respond to their plight? So we at The Men Project really encourage pastors and therapists and frontline organizations, whether they're in the ministry or their other secular organizations, to become trained to be able to effectively respond to victims. Because so often what happens is victims are then doubly abused by receiving a response that's not healing. You know, pastors, they care so much about their congregations. They work so hard oftentimes for, you know, limited salaries, and they are expected to know so much about nearly every sort of crisis, and they can't possibly be experts in every area. But the training that we provide at the Men Project simplifies these complicated topics so that they can really be equipped and feel confident in their ability to respond well, not only to victims, but to interface with perpetrators in a way that has a far better chance of saving a marriage by interceding early in the problem rather than a prolonged abusive problem that nearly always necessitates divorce. Earlier, you had mentioned double abuse. Can we talk a little bit more about that? What happened to me was when I went through this situation with my husband, and, and my husband and I were um, able to ultimately save our marriage. But when I was initially going through the covert emotional abuse and my immune system became very compromised and I had post-traumatic stress, I reached out to my Bible study 
leaders. And I expected that they would understand about marital problems because they were on the board of a ministry that serves marriages and families. But what happened to me was that rather than believe my story, they doubted my story because they didn't see any evidence of it in public, which is very common that abusers, they carry a public image and there's a private one. And they didn't believe me. In fact, they gave me ultimatums and said I needed to re-enter couple therapy, which was highly unsuccessful, or I would never be allowed back into this group that I had belonged to for 14 years. The secondhand abuse can be just as harmful, if not more, as the original abuse. And in the hundreds of victims that I interviewed, I have to be honest, they wanted to talk more about the secondary abuse of what I trademarked the term double abuse because I felt like it needed to have a name if we were to stop it. But rather than being believed or supported, they're often criticized, they're judged, they're asked pointed questions, they're given ultimatums, and sometimes they're even ostracized by their family, their church members, or their professional community. And for a victim to be disconnected from is the worst thing that you can do. What they need is connection and understanding. They need compassion and healing. And sometimes it's forgotten, but men are abused as well. What would you say to a man facing abuse right now? How would you deal with that? You know, as a man facing abuse, and I've seen it a number of times, we we tend to react because we're being hurt or victimized. And before we speak to somebody else about their injustice, we need to speak first to God about our righteousness. So I would say to most men, first of all, get yourself healthy. If you're in an abusive situation, if you're being abused, get yourself healthy. Get around healthy people. Get involved in your local church. Get involved in your local parish. Get involved with other men and begin to see what it is to live in in a wholesome situation. And then, frankly, get yourself out of that, either by the other person changing or removing yourself from that situation. So let's talk about the healing model. Okay, we call it the healing model of compassion because compassion is what we're all capable of giving. And compassion is really all that a victim needs, unless they're in a dire situation where you need to provide resources for them to escape. But if we're talking about a victim coming forward and trying to tell their story to receive support. Our healing model of compassion teaches you the simple steps that you need to do. You don't have to become an expert on abuse, but if you do these things, you will not do further harm. So the first one is listen. Listen over and over with a closed mouth because the victim just needs someone safe that they can process their confusing experiences with that will sit with them and allow them the space and time to do that. It might take one hour session or it might take several months, but a listener, you know, a friend is being someone willing to go for a walk once a week or a pastor who's willing to spend time as that victim unravels the confusion that they've been in is profoundly helpful. And then accept, we say accept, believe the experience to be true. So often it's just our human instinct to doubt the story to be true. So we start questioning them. There's no harm in believing the story to be true. But if you don't believe the story to be true, your comments and questions actually exacerbate a victim's trauma. So just 
there's no harm in believing. If they're, if they're not telling the truth, it will come out eventually. And only 3% of victims, studies showed, are not telling the truth. You know, unless you get into the court systems and sometimes the numbers change. But generally speaking, when someone's reaching out to a pastor or a friend, they have no reason to be lying. They just are looking for compassionate ears. So accept it to be true and then empathize with them. Put yourself in their shoes. You can't believe their story if you can't empathize and really try to understand what it must feel like. And then validate, mirror back what you hear them say and let them know you have every reason to feel this way. It's not your fault. You know, what you're experiencing is not right and you have every reason to feel this way. And then identify, find your parallel experience. You might say, gosh, what you're telling me reminds me of a story of something I experienced in college and it was so upsetting to me. I can only imagine what you must be going through. Don't say, well, let me tell you about me and hijack the conversation. We just when you identify and just take 10 seconds or 20 seconds to intersect part of your own story, it lets them know that you're being a good listener and then encourage them. Offer support on their path. Tell them that you believe in them and that you you know they're going to get through this, that they're a strong person and that you're there for them. And ask, we don't ask any questions except for one. So, so often people will say, well, have you tried this or why didn't you do this? Or, well, I would have done that. Those are very triggering statements to hear from a listener. So what you want to do is limit yourself to ask only one question. How can I help you? That's it. And victims usually come back with something very reasonable, like, will you come with me to my attorney's office? I'm shaking. I don't feel I can do it alone. I need someone to help advocate for me or Will you just meet with me once in a while so I can talk? It's usually a very reasonable request. And then lastly, grieve with them. Allow them to grieve. So often people say, well, don't cry, or they try to stop the grieving process when if you actually sit with them through that process, it's an opportunity for a deep connection. And connection and compassion is so what a victim needs. The opposite of these behaviors cheaters ever so close to condemnation, you know, interrogating questions and misbelieving statements. That is condemnation. So we want to stay in the box of compassion. And when you think about it, I'd like to end by just saying, if you have to come up with solutions, that's much harder for the listener to do. And I think so often we think we have to fix things. But really what compassion is, is it's just sitting and connecting with someone. And doing that is so much more easy than trying to micromanage their life or to provide solutions for them or to interpret the abuse story. Really, all we need to do is extend love and patience, connection, and a listening ear. Pastor Paul, how can we as a society help young men who may have grown up around violence or abuse avoid carrying on that cycle? The only way that the culture will change is if the heart of the culture changes, because out of your heart comes what you do with your hands. People who are acting out right now in violence or rage, whether it be domestic violence or uh, violence in some sort of riot situation, that acting out comes from the heart. So to change the heart, you have to actually speak to the life of a man. And we know as followers of Christ, that comes out of the word of God. It comes out of basis in your vision to have brotherhood, friendship, 
and a vision of who I am and what I will be. Thank you, Pastor, for your words today. Appreciate it. Annette, thank you so much for all the information that you've provided. I truly appreciate your time and for getting the word out about the abuse that most people don't even know exists right now. Billy, thank you so much for shining a light on this important topic. Ephesians 5, 12 through 13 says to bring all matters into the light, even the unspeakable, because that which is illuminated can then become a light. So thank you so much. Again, you are not alone. If your partner physically or emotionally abuses you, or you don't know how to stop hurting your family, call the Closer Look Pastors, 844-364-4673. That's 844-364-HOPE. For Closer Look, I'm Billy Branham.